Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. If you would like to be a sponsor of the Planetrillion Trees podcast, please see our website at theplanetrillionreespodcast.com and click on the Sponsors tab. We are proud to announce that the Planetrillion Trees podcast has received a Silver Medal Award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. This podcast is being recorded on January 20th, 2023. Tom Smarr is the executive director of Jenkins Arboretum and Gardens in Devon, Pennsylvania. He holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Environmental Studies from Slippery Rock University in Pennsylvania and has a Master's degree in Urban Horticulture Studies from the University of Washington in Seattle. He has worked for institutions such as the University of Washington Botanic Gardens in Seattle and the Native Plant Trust's Botanic Garden, Garden in the Woods in Massachusetts. Tom's most notable work has been leading horticulture at newly opened urban parks such as the Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy Greenway in Boston, the High Line in New York City, and the Parklands of Floyd's Fork in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome to the Planetrillion Trees podcast, Tom. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Yes, welcome, Tom, and welcome to all the fans of the uh, Jenkins Arboretum. We're looking forward to hearing more about it. The basic question we love to ask, because everyone seems to come in on a different path, is how did you find your way into horticulture? Yeah, well, just first, thank you for having me on the podcast. This is exciting. I've heard a lot about your uh, programs. Always fun. And I came to horticulture a little bit in an odd way. I grew up with parents who both grew up on farms and sort of had plants, house plants, or gardened or dragged off to gardens and things, you know, as a kid, but sort of interested in it. But I went for my undergraduate degree in environmental studies. So I didn't have a horticulture background when I approached uh, Longwood Gardens for an internship. I applied for an internship. And so I'm part of that Longwood. uh, uh, quote unquote mafia of training program for the benefit of great <laughs> tradition. Mafia. tradition. Yeah, right? yeah, it's a great benefit to <laughs> me and all the others who go through those programs, but that the programs that Longwood offers. But they told me when they called me up because they were curious about me, they put me on the rejection pile, but they called me up because they were struggling to fill an internship position and they wanted to 
learn a little bit about me because I was one of the few people that applied for this internship. And it was a rotational position through the different greenhouses at Longwood, propagation and production and research and things like that. And I had a great conversation with the then director of horticulture who was sort of leading this internship. And, you know, as a youngster, I didn't say, you know, I worked on my parents' 15-acre, you know, land. I had a, we had a vegetable garden, we had an orchard, we had an herb garden, and I built my own native plant garden. And they were like, oh, well, we'll just hire you. You're, you're a great fit. So I was there for a little less than a year for that internship and then just kept rolling with it. Another internship, ended up going to graduate school and then just started getting great jobs. So, you know, I've been very fortunate to work in, you know, a lot of interesting fields in horticulture. I probably have a very diverse background. But yeah, I just sort of dove into horticulture. I always tell people, you know, you could do any job. I think this is probably true of any profession, but you could do any job by either staying in one place and really building a, a real great basis or a great foundation at that job and, and build your professionalism at one place, or you can move around. That could be in the same place you're at, or you can move around different parts of the country. And I've mostly worked in eastern, northeastern, temperate zones of North America, but I've worked in a conservation organization. Um, most of my work has been in newly built parks, the Rose Kennedy Greenway in Boston, the High Line in New York, and little less known, but the Parklands of Floyd's Fork in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, so that was great. And then now I'm at Jenkins Arboretum, which is a bit of a return to public gardens, like botanical gardens uh, with uh, accession collections and all that. So it's been a fun ride. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to more adventures, but right now I'm in a really good place. So where was the family farm, Tom? So my father was in the army when I was a child. So we lived in a lot of different places in the in tropical and northern eastern or eastern zones. So lived in Hawaii for a while. But when we my father retired, um, I was in my teens at that point, and my parents bought a 15 acre place in northern Pennsylvania, Potter County, Pennsylvania. Oh yeah. Those were Potter County. So I always teased it was um, my father uh, was probably looking to get away from uh, his in-laws, wanted a little distance between him and the in-laws who were in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. So we had a very close connection to Lebanon, the agriculture, the rich agriculture there and dairy farms and such. But so we visited often there, but we uh, lived in this sort of mountainous region, which was fun and exhausting because we were dealing with big winter storms and cold. We said there was only, you know, the only month out of the year it didn't freeze was August. But it was interesting. It was an, it was a great opportunity. And I learned about native plants because we owned, we were at 15 acres within probably a couple hundred acres of just open woodlands. I mean, mm. it was amazing. You know, we were definitely in very rural. It took me you know, it was a 20-minute drive to just get to the town and the school where I went. So it was fun. I ran around the woods. I learned about my first native plant I learned was hepatica, which is now anemone. They reclassified it as an anemone, but it was, I called it hepatia because I didn't know how to say Latin names. But hepatica was one of the first plants I learned and have a soft spot for. Um, red trilliums, which I sort of use as a little bit of my own symbol nowadays, which is beautiful and popular. So running around those woods, I learned about all these different native plants, the hepatica, the red trilliums, um, uh, claytonia was everywhere. Uh, in fact, it was like, it looked like in April, uh, it looked like snow in the ground in the forest because there was so much of the wow. spring blooming everywhere. It just, it was magical. And so I learned about all the, I, I sort of was attracted to the herbaceous plants early on. The trees were beautiful, but I got really connected. But 
the cornus alternofolia, the pagoda dogwood, grew in the tree lines, like the the, mm. the uh, farmer tree lines, beautiful trees, these beautiful wow. structures. And I've never seen it grow that beautiful since it, it, it up there. So, you know, there's really something about being in spaces where you can see these plants growing in their native habitat. The amelanchiers grew beautifully in the edge of the woods, right? You saw them on the right. edge forest lines and beautiful blooms in April. And I, I it, we have a beautiful one blooming here at Jenkins now. And it always reminds me of the ones I saw up there, but it, it was a really magical area. And I encourage anybody to go to the northern tier of Pennsylvania or even the southern tier of, in New York. And it's a really beautiful area to discover. I agree. On. Yeah. Well, you just touched on a little bit of where we want to head and, and talk about the brief history of the Arboretum and talk about some of the the highlights of, of the of the garden itself. And I know that I'm always in awe of your tree specimens because especially the chestnut oak or the Quercus prinus or Quercus montana, depending on what day the wind is blowing. <laughs> but yeah, if you could tell us a little bit about that, that would be great. Yeah, so I joined Jenkins Arboretum back in mid-2019, followed in the footsteps of Harold Sweetman, who had been the executive director here for 33 years. He was sort of like a head of horticulture and uh, the Arboretum because he was like one of the only employees for a long time. You know, amazing, amazing legacy of building up this garden. He followed after his own father, who was here 10 years prior to that. And I think what I've discovered being here, and you were talking about the collections, it's been really fascinating to see this collection. Our garden is about 45, a little over 45 years old at this point. And planting has been sort of continuous in those sort of 45 years. They opened up on Mother's Day in 1976. And, you know, there's this sort of both the sort of accredited collections that we've been planting in those 45 years and the plants that were here prior to that. So the Jenkins themselves bought this land in 19, well, I should say they didn't buy the land. Their, her father bought the land. We pretty much suspect that this was a wedding gift. Elizabeth Jenkins was the only daughter of, of Mr. Philippe who bought this land and had the house built on this site. It was sort of like a 20-acre little estatelet. But the Jenkins, they had this house, and she really loved plants, nature, birds. She had a little dog she raised. And I think they really just you know, took care of the land in many ways. The garden that they planted isn't here anymore, and it probably wasn't much to look at even in 19, 1968 when Mr. Jenkins, who was the last surviving owner of the property after her passing, decided to leave it as a public space. So in his will, he dedicated the property in her memory because of her love of nature and her love of plants and wanted it to be a place of horticulture study for arboriculture, plant study, wildlife, people to enjoy a public space. And so he left it. And um, shortly after that, Mrs. Browning, who was the neighbor, said she wanted to do the same thing. She loved the idea, thought it was really lovely. And she decided to leave her acreage, her estate, which is right next door. So we now have about 48 acres of land and about 15 of it is open to the public. So once the Jenkins and Brownings left the property, it went into a bank trust. And quickly after that, a trust group was formed and they did a master plan. And that was run by Patton. Um, I want to say George Patton. I'm not sure on that first name. Yep. But, Patton. Uh, but 
he did the initial first master plan. And when he came on the site, he said, ooh, you have this amazing mature overhead forest. You were referencing all the oaks. We have some hickories on the site. We have some maples, a lot of tulip poplars that are on the site, these beautiful upright straight trees that create this great overstory. And then he was looking around and there's like, oh, there's rhododendron paramacoides, you know, native, native azaleas and around. And he looked at the soil and said, ooh, it's very acidic soil, which you don't have all over this area, this very nice acidic soil. And it was a north-facing slope. And he said, this would be a great place to grow rhododendrons and azalea collection. Now, this is an era when collections, when you were building a new garden, public garden or public space, you built gardens on taxonomic collections. And so they were trying to find that what that taxonomic collection was. And at the time, rhododendron azaleas were very popular landscape plants. So they wanted to build a, a collection from around the world that would grow here, temperate collections. So that was steadily worked on and been collected. We still do that today. And we're actually an accredited rhododendron azalea and mountain laurel collection here in the United States through the, uh, through the American Public Gardens Association's uh, National Plant Consortium or something like that, but network that's a great organization within the American Public Gardens Association. So we have that accredited collection today. But what's interesting is when you build, you have a great overstory of trees, mature trees, and then you have a shrub layer, mostly aracaceous, azaleas, rhododendrons. What do you put down below them? And this is where, you know, the Sweetmans, I think, really came in and was very interested in a lot of native plants and a lot of other plants, but I think they were particularly interested in native plants. And they started planting sweeps of ferns and erythroniums, was a great sweep of erythroniums, and other sort of native plants as the understory, and then adding other shrubs, because you couldn't just have azaleas and rhododendrons everywhere, other shrubs and where there could be new trees, they planted new trees. And so we have this amazing collection of native plants here as well, um, North Eastern American native plants as well. And it's a nice combination because our garden is very naturalistic. There's not, Patton in his original master plan did sort of recommend a way of planting the azaleas in sort of a color profusion. It was sort of followed, not sort of followed, depending on how planting opportunities worked out. But you sort of have sort of certain areas have some specific types of azaleas and rhododendrons, but it's a very naturalistic garden. So it doesn't feel formal or, you know, it's not like walking through an, an alley of organized trees or anything. It's very organic, which I think a lot of people appreciate. I think, unfortunately, though, they don't realize it's always a botanical garden with that. And you know, sometimes people see botanic gardens as being. In this area, I think a lot of people see like longwood gardens with, you know, nice clip hedges and alleys and big fountains shooting up. We don't have that, but I think people really do appreciate when they come in and, and see the complexity of what is happening in the layered effect of the canopy, the, the mid-layer of trees and shrubs, and then your understory uh, herbaceous plants. You know, um, what I like about the garden and we've kind of, it's kind of disappeared from this region is that this region at one time was the epicenter for greenhouse production in the entire world. But it also was a big nursery center for production. And I can't remember what year it was, but the last of the rhododendron growers, um, Stanford Roberts disappeared off. They sold their property for development in Newtown, Pennsylvania. But 
it was a place where you would see rhododendrons and azaleas. And of course, Friends Hospital, with their work with mental health, would do propagating of azaleas so that when you went through that garden, people would get an azalea every year in their car. So when you went home, you planted it in your garden. And people don't realize that the majority of the azaleas that we have not only come from the nurseries that were here, but also from the Friends Hospital because they gave away thousands and thousands and mm. thousands of azaleas and rhododendrons to the people who came to visit. And that was propagation for health. And your garden reminds me so much of my childhood and that portion of our region's history that has kind of slipped away from our context, uh, if you will. And uh, I think that's what I love about coming to your garden, especially around Mother's Day when when the cacophony of color is just so amazing. And, and that all comes from the Depression, that, that whole idea of planting azaleas and who cares what color, it's about the plant. And coming out of a deep depression, that color made people happy. So that kind of, that feel still travels today in your garden when you go to visit it. And I, I think that's a real strong suit. Yeah, I think people look at our garden. They love coming. We definitely see our peak visitation um, that spring peak season, you know, late April, early May, because of that big burst of color and color all over. It's hard to be any garden in the spring, right? So many gardens are great spring gardens because flowers just are blooming everywhere. Those plants have been waiting all winter to do their thing. And I do feel very fortunate that Jenkins has this unique treasure. People have likened us sometimes to great Asian gardens, especially in like Japan, where there's great azalea gardens. And as you know, they stand in the middle of an area of azalea hill and just say, I feel like I'm in some amazing color explosion. We've been working really hard, though, to expand the bloom season, not just with rhododendron azaleas, but with other plant collections. And so lately, we've been really focusing on a lot of our native species, our North American native species, and working on plants that provide um, ecological connections as well. But we're right now have been doing a lot of work around our pond garden area. And we had some storm damage in 2020 where we've lost 60 trees in one day. Mm. Now, full forest management is another thing we talk about here, but it's given us an opportunity to have a little bit more sun, have some, do some new planting of specimen trees that, you know, we can plant them smaller, they get really established well. So we've been working on that so we can expand. I actually think the color and fall is almost equal. I mean, it's not all flower color, sometimes yes. leaf color. The color in fall here at Jenkins is phenomenal. And you know, I always say our, our topography here is a hillside. It's both a blessing and a challenge. The challenge is it's, it's hard to walk up and down sometimes the hill. The blessing is we get these beautiful views and just north of us is, is Valley Forge Park. So and you look over what they call the Great Valley, where the Pennsylvania Turnpike runs. So we look over it. We can hear a little hum of it in the background, but you look right over into Valley Forge. So you get this sort of unending sea of tree canopy from our site looking towards Valley Forge. And that's really, we're, we're one of those few guards that get this great vista of views from our upper trails. But around the pond, we've been focusing on a fall bowl of color around that area, not with just flowers, but also the leaf color. So we're really trying to expand that because we want people to appreciate and want to come multiple times a year. What's a little unique about us, we are a nonprofit. We are, like I said, we've been 40, we're a little over 45 years old. Everything that's been done here, the Jenkins weren't able to leave us money. The Brownings weren't able to leave us money. 
but our community stepped up early in those early days and even today to continue to support and build Jenkins. Everything we have here from our education center that's up top that people are welcome to, the whole gardens, the pathways, the collections, everything has been supported and helped built by our community. And so as part of that, we like being free and open to the public. So we don't charge admission. So we have, I mean, unfortunately, the only barrier to get into Jenkins is transportation. It's about driving here because we don't have good access to public transit. But anybody can get through the gate is able to come and enjoy Jenkins at some level. If they can't walk around as easily, we have a beautiful canopy deck that they can overview and watch Jenkins or or they can walk around slowly or our families love and run down to the pond. The little kids love to run down to the pond, especially in the summer when the turtles are down there sunning themselves in the log. But people, I think that we have neighbors that come every day and walk around. So, you know, it's a fun thing. Our programs, we've really been trying to focus on connection with nature and plants and really trying to connect people to what that means to be connected with a place like this, but also with nature in general. You know, one thing, Tom, you mentioned a few minutes ago, the garden has an organic feel and a naturalistic feel. And one thing that comes up with our guests and Eva and I kind of batted around as well is how to reduce the carbon footprint of everything to do with horticulture. And inadvertently, it seems like Jenkins is already there. I mean, you don't probably have the deck mowers and the acres of turf grass getting mowed or the the blowers throughout the day clearing, you know, pathways. You're not shearing endless amounts of hedge. I'd like to think that in a sense, you're leading the way with a arboretum that is not going to be so reliant on fossil fuels. Yeah, we're working more and more on that too. Um, Almost all of our golf carts that the staff run around on the property or the ones we use for some of our, we do do a golf cart tours for some uh, people who aren't able to walk around and they're all electric. So we're looking at alternatives to some of our power equipment. We do use leaf blowers, but early in the morning, but it would be great if we could convert some of those over to uh, electric, especially in those seasons where you're not moving large volumes of leaves, you're just sort of dusting off the pathways. But as we look at the gardens themselves, uh, we're, we're starting to try to figure out how we can tell these stories better, right? We recycle the leaves. We don't blow all the leaves out of the beds. We have a lot of oak leaves, so sometimes we have to blow them out and shred them and put them back in. It sounds yeah. a little super intensive, but we actually have landscapers who will drop off leaves for us, uh, oak leaves especially, and we'll shred them and then use them as mulch throughout the year. We store them, and then we, if we do a garden renovation or need to spruce up an area, we can uh, layer over the, malt, the shredded leaf mulch. Wood chips have their, their place. We use wood chips. We, when we have a tree, we have to have trees or branches removed on the property. We'll have the arborists chip them and leave us the pile as much as possible. So we're, we unfortunately, during that 2020 storm, we lost several trees right around the pond area. We had them chip 100% of all that wood right into the garden beds because there was sort of poor soil down there with a lot of clay. And we said, this will be awesome for soil building. Yep. It's so yeah, especially for woody plants. When you get a woody organic matter and you put it in a way that it can start breaking down, that gives you a fungal composting or fungal uh, interactions, which is great for woody plants uh, as in their root promotions and growth. So I think your borders are really looking good too, where you had trees that have come out, and I think that would go to the credit of the of the wood chips with them being down, and it really it looks amazing. 
when you walk through the, the woody areas, it's just phenomenal. We're blessed with some really great soil too. It, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the advantages of a place like Jenkins is we didn't have, we never had a lot of construction. The biggest, two biggest construction projects on site are probably the education building, which is up by the parking lot and the pond. The pond was built in the seventies. It wasn't late seventies. It wasn't here when the Jenkins lived here. That was an added feature that Patton added in the design. So those are two biggest construction impacts. When I've worked in other parks, like the Rose Kennedy Greenway or in Kentucky, we saw a lot of compacted problems when you dealt with constructed areas. Because you construct things, you need heavy equipment. And that damages soil. So how do you get decompact soil? How do you get organic matter? How do you get the organisms to work again? I did a lot of work on uh, looking at soil and organic health of the soil when I was at the Rose Kennedy Greenway. That's a completely organic park. And so, you know, here we're very fortunate. We have great healthy soils. doesn't mean we don't have some disease issues and challenges, but we've got these great soils that we can work with. And we really are trying to be cautious if we do projects in the future that we're not creating problems for ourselves with the soil. So that'll be really tricky. And I think to your point of we are doing some of the things that other places are trying to initiate. And we're just trying to figure out how can we tell those stories? How can we be an example for our community even where we're in a community where there's a lot of larger homes with big yards and landscapes? And how can we be an example of ways that maybe they could look at managing some of that property a little different? Maybe they plant some of it into a meadow. Now we don't have great sunspots to great plant a big meadow, but we could show some examples of what those plants can look like. The Browning property is not really open to the public, but in our master plan, we're calling for an opportunity to expand the garden into that land. And part of that is a big open sunny area that can be a meadow. I did want to just hop back a minute or two ago, because I'm like you. I think one of my happy places uh, in horticulture is decomposing wood chips. <laughs> and when you reach down and grab a handful and you see the threads of the mycelium through there, it's like, uh, I, that's when I really feel like a steward. Yeah. Learning about what that organisms are doing in that, in that, yeah. that medium, right? The yeah. working with compost, working with wood chips. It's so much fun. It's a whole nother life zone, right? We think yeah. about our forests and the foxes and the rabbits and squirrels and the birds and all their what they're doing. But you know, you think about that soil layer with all the, the fungal and bacterial interactions, and then you got the sort of predators, you know, that's nemat good nematodes or bad nematodes, but these are good nematodes. Right. Earthworms are sort of a very obvious one people see, or other insects and things. But there's such an interesting little biome once you start putting a microscope. Yeah, there's so many amazing. Well, you could keep people busy forever at your place. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I think there's a really interesting. What I love about it is this is all coming together in I think the field of horticulture, right? Right. Since about the 90s has really been talking about native plants, right? The native plants are a revolution. And then I think the soil health thing has really become big. You know, there's been several books written about soil health and fungal fungus and you know the food web. Mycorrhizae. Mycorrhizae. It's all becoming really big as, as science is learning it, but also people are just realizing the importance of it. And um, we're realizing more and more our inputs. And we're seeing this in our food side of all this story, you know, organic foods and everything. But it all comes back to, you know, everybody will say, it all comes back to soil and the roots that you put in it. So it's really fascinating. But I think Jenkins has a is in a really interesting place. And 
we're working on some planning now as we look towards our future. So we're about to come up to our 50th anniversary in 26. And it's like, what do we want the next 50 years to look like for Jenkins? And, you know, we're not going to do any major overarching changes to the garden, but we're saying, what are the assets that we can really focus on? And we have this great naturalistic garden, has some great collections in it. But I think there's a story we can start talking about ecological horticulture. And, you know, talking about how we take care of the plants that were already here, the plants that we have here, planting appropriate new plants doesn't always have to mean it has to be everything native, but you want to make sure you're planting plants that are beneficial and healthy to the ecology and, you know, making sure we're looking at issues. We're, we're faced with a lot of challenges and we've definitely seen our share of storm damage here. We're seeing disease issues. You know, you were talking about the great oaks that we have here. Our red oaks are under attack right now. Bacterial leaf scorch is a big one. And unfortunately, you, you come in the, in the Arboretum during the winter, sometimes we'll have arborists here that are taking down a tree. We hate taking down trees. That's not, we don't want to see stumps in the, in the gardens. But when we do that, we're, we're trying to figure out, right, what species do we plant to help continue to build that forest canopy? But then how can we do some things to maybe modify some of the impacts that are happening? Our forests are under attack right now. It's not from too much water or drought conditions, sometimes the periodic drought conditions, insects and other diseases. How do we modify and maintain our forest as we go through it? And Jenkins, we, you know, I would say two thirds of our property is covered in a nice woodlands, uh, hardwood woodlands for the most part. And how do we manage that? Because people look at us and see these beautiful towering trees and it's going to take another 50 to 80 years to get new towering trees up. So we need to start thinking about how we plant those and manage what we have. You know, when I had my students there, I asked if we could do a project. You'll appreciate this, how the students were walking through and Karen and Steve said, just take the sticks, any, any sticks you see, and just break them up, put them back in the garden. And so if there's a stick on the walkway, you pick it up and you break it and put it back into the garden. Now, most people would never think of that, but just that act in itself is already creating additional um, microorganisms to react with the soil and, and break down. So I thought that was really clever. Yeah, we're also trying to leave snags periodically. We won't do it with all the trees, but you know, especially hard to reach spaces, but sometimes we'll try to leave some snags. We don't tend to leave a lot of logs in the garden, but I wouldn't be, I would be open to doing that. And I think we just need to look at that a little bit differently as well. But how do you allow for that natural organic? How do you leave the biomass, right? I talked about wood chips. That's a quick way to get woody material to break down. But how do you leave the biomass in place and, and let it break down and build the soil? Yeah, that also goes back to perception by the public. You know, the log laying there, People need to understand that it's playing a vital role rather than hauling it away. I want to talk about species a little bit more, Tom. I'm interested, you mentioned you grew up or at least had some formative years in Potter County. I don't know what hardiness zone that is, but it is northern tier Pennsylvania. Cold. And, and cold. Yeah, I and think then, it's five, four or five. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting hit. Okay, thank you. And uh, zone four or five. So now you're down here in southeastern Pennsylvania. Any observations you can make? They're so very different. And I want to tie this long line of questioning into assisted migration as you play with your species list, or play is the wrong word, but you're, you're giving serious attention to what do you plant now. 
Any examples of, of what that looks like, including our natives, rhododendrons and calmia? And do we have some options there? It's an interesting question. When I was in Potter County, I really wasn't aware or noticed the stuff. That was, I hate to age myself, but you know, yeah. 30 years, 30 <laughs> plus years ago. But when I was at Garden in the Woods, which is the botanical garden of the Native Plant Trust outside of Boston, we looked a lot at this. And uh, Harvard University, which owns Arnold Arboretum, was also looking at climate and temperature, uh, tracking temperature as long as well as collections durability. It was interesting being in the Boston area and coming down to the Philadelphia area. I remember going to Mount Cuba and looking at a lot of the native plants they were growing. And they were saying, oh, we have too much humidity. You can grow the, you know, some of the stuff better up in Boston because your humidity is not as high. And you don't get these mildews and things like that that they would get down in the Philadelphia area. But I think it is interesting. You know, I think like, like right now, you know, we have no snow cover. This is, um, we're, we're talking now in yeah. January in 2023, and there's no snow cover on the ground. And we're not seeing that layer of snow insulation that you would have gotten. We often hope for that, even in the Boston area, get that snow insulation down the ground for a lot of the plants, especially when you get these severe cold snaps. And we're just seeing this sort of change in our, our winters where we get severe cold snaps that quickly turn to warm days way above freezing for several periods and how how you talk about migration getting back to that you know up in new england we talked a lot about you know certain plant species that weren't native there but grew there like the the magnolias right the big leaf magnolias the native magnolias they weren't native to that area but they grew perfectly fine they were cold hardy and would deal with it yeah and, and we see that around pennsylvania as well and so it's just for us we haven't dig, dug into it enough our horticulture director, Steve Wright, might be able to dig into it enough. My problem with my job as executive director, I don't get to talk about horticulture very often. So I haven't got a chance to study some of this. But for us, we have a collection of native and non-native azaleas and rhododendrons. And it'll be interesting to see if we're able to grow some different stuff over the next several you know, decades or not. I think it'll be interesting to look at microclimates, I think, as we go forward as well. We're in a north-facing slope, but if you're in a south-facing slope, what does that look like? And also looking at moisture retention. I've been here four summers. Two of those four summers I've been here, we've had some significant dry spells. And we're fortunate at Jenkins, we have a sort of a little bit of an archaic, but irrigation system, a sort of assembled irrigation system. And it's been a lifeline for a lot of our plants to be able to keep that irrigation going. And then we do spot watering from big tanks and such along our roadsides to keep everything sort of active. That to me is going to be the, the winter is probably less harmful. It's probably going to be this this dry that we're starting to look at, and how is that going to have an impact? And then when we get these severe storms, how does that how does erosion impact us? We're seeing some really bad erosion and storm damage the southern part of our property where we have a small tributary of a stream running through, and so those are the things I'm really concerned about is is the not just the general the sort of even sort of temperature change, but the peaks that start are starting to show up more frequently because uh, it's harder to recover from those peaks the, the dips in cold and the peaks of dry or heat but it's i think that will be really interesting to see how that affects species and how we can manage the health and you know do gardens have to modify their environment by irrigating or such you know we we try to get a lot of organic matter down so we have good mulching layers down to help modify that environment but how much more are we going to have to modify the environment yeah. to grow? 
And I guess associated with that, Tom, can you talk a little bit about, do you have major, I mean, you mentioned bacterial leaf scorch, you know, I'm coming out of the uh, private sector. So rhododendrons, azaleas, you know, that was always a red flag for three to four to five different either insect diseases or like Phytophthora, which was extremely difficult to, you know, get consistent success. And then rhododendron borer, Texas vine weevil, you know, it it meant a lot of product to keep things looking good. Are you faced with similar challenges? Don't don't say those things too loud while I'm sitting in a rhododendron in azalea garden. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't want them to know about it. But no, we're, we, we can edit it out. I, I'm teasing, <laughs> um, but I, uh, you know, it's, we've seen some uh, weevil, uh, vine weevil issues in some of our rhododendrons. We actually treated that with a nematode um, application. When I was at the Highland, we did a lot of nematode application to manage hmm. with crops that were affecting our grasses. And, and our horticulture director got some, uh, I think it was a little over a year ago, he did a nematode application uh, around the area that he was seeing special problems because it gets into the, the nematodes get into the, into not to get too graphic. Insects are, if you watch a horror movie with aliens and you see, yes. I think even, <laughs> yeah, no, that's happening on our planet. Right? That's not happening up in space. That's happening on our planet. That's, um, but anyways, we haven't seen too many, fortunately, knock on wood, you know, I don't want to see any, hopefully, uh, fungal issues with the rhododendron azaleas, because it, it is challenging sometimes to run a collection that is all the same genus, right? You can see some issues. Uh, we do have some scale issues that we have to treat for on our azaleas, and we're uh, mostly our azaleas. Um, so that's something we have to be careful, we have to watch, and we treat that sometimes spot treat it in the fall and then do a big treatment in the uh, spring. So it's a, a horticulture, I think, oil application for that. So it's sure. Yeah. One of the tricks is, is management of you know, practices. So shrubs are great at collecting leaves in them over the winter, right? All the leaves fall in the fall. Yeah. And leaves. So what we have to do is we have to go through, our volunteers are very helpful with this, or we bring in a volunteer group we actually remove all those leaves because you want to make sure those stems are exposed to the elements. So those insects at scale, especially, is exposed to the elements because yeah. they hibernate in the insulated areas where those leaves collect in the crotches and things like that. Right. But yeah, so far, knock on wood, we haven't seen any of that. Even, even with lanternfly, which has been a really big problem in the last couple of years, the first year I was here, I think it was in 19, uh, we saw it attack some of our trees in a really bad way. But I don't know if it's the population swing is down right now and we'll see it swing back up, but we haven't had to do any major treatment for it. We did sort of sticky traps that we wrapped in hardware cloth so that birds and other things wouldn't get into it. But we see a few of them, but we haven't seen big inundation of them. And we're very close to train lines that have Tree of Heaven on them. So I know they're being... Mm, Yes. And we do have our birds, our sparrows, especially. I, I mean, I watch out my garden and thinking, what the heck are they eating? And, like, they're really diligent. And, of course, they're eating uh, spotted lanternfly. And then when the Japanese beetles come, I said, I didn't know you guys eat Japanese beetles, too. But they were eating Japanese beetles. And I, I was thrilled beyond words. But that's what's good about having, so, you know, something really close to the house where you can actually watch what they're watch what they're doing. And at Jenkins, I think, you know, you're up in it all the time so you can actually see what's going on it's not like your plants are so far away you're walking through them and in them all the time so that really creates a um a good way to see things uh whether there's any insects or diseases yeah 
one thing I wanted to point out, and I don't know whether how you know this, but Jenkins was the very first Arboretum to have an, a LEED certified building. Huh. And it, it was quite the stir when it happened. And people came from all over to see it because they were like, whoa, this is amazing. And so you were talking about uh, setting precedent and coming up with energy efficiency. And Jenkins was ahead of the game. And, uh, you know, you have to give it to um, your predecessor. He he really worked hard to get that. And um, it was pretty amazing when it happened to see a LEED certified building go up in an Ar- and Botanic Garden Arboreta. And I think it was the very first in the country, to be quite honest. I think it was. Wow, I'd love to look into that a little bit more to figure that out. But yeah, I'm really proud that we have this great, it it takes a little extra cost sometimes to do that. So yeah, I I know Harold, my predecessor, is very proud of that building and it operates amazing. It's, It's one of the most efficient buildings. So we have three historic houses on property as well. And frankly, that building is larger and, you know, and has more people moving in and out of it, but it is actually almost equal or less cost than managing these historic houses that are on the property. Actually, oddly enough, the Jenkins house is probably one of the more expensive ones to manage because it's got a little more draftiness. I heard an interesting podcast that was on NPR, and I forget what piece it was about, but they were talking to a builder who does energy-efficient homes. And I thought it was really interesting. He was talking about, I guess every year they put up a big energy-efficient home in the middle of a trade show. And he said, it's great to build all these new energy-efficient homes, these new buildings, like we built this education building. But he said, until we go back and start retrofitting our existing housing stock or building stock, we're not going to solve a lot of the energy issues that are surrounding our homes. So one of the visions that I have and that I want to work out is I'd actually like to take the Jenkins house and make it an energy-efficient home. Change the heating, air conditioning system, Windows, windows, yeah. insulation, uh, insulation. You know, it may we may have to make some decisions that you know you change products on the building, but you're lo- using low VOC paints and really work toward a more efficiency building, and then demonstrate that to the public. We don't tell these stories, and that's what we're also working on. We're trying to tell these stories more, and I would really like to be able to tell the story of we're, we're struggling with how do we connect that building to the other buildings on our property, even though they're most of them are visible to the public. We don't right now open them up for people to walk around. But in the future, we may let the Jenkins house be a site that people can come to. Well, how do we connect the two? Because they don't look anything alike. They have no relationship with each other visually. But if, I think that sustainability message could be a really beautiful one. And the Jenkins house looks like a lot of the houses around here. And then we make the landscape around it sort of a demonstration landscape about growing plants that are good for your environment, you know, and deal with water. It's that sits at the top of the hill, but it's got a big roof line and you deal with water management as well. How do you collect rain barrels to use to water your, your plants during the winter or during the summer, hot summers? But yeah. It's nice and cool too, to walk through your garden in the summertime when it's really hot. It, because it's nice and shady and not all gardens are like that. The other thing that you do, I hope you don't mind me pulling all this information out, just because I go there a lot, is the, your plant sales and your plant propagation. And you do such a wonderful service for the community by having native plants available for sale at your arboreta. Yeah, Arbor- yeah. Arbor- yeah. Arboretum and Gardens, right? It's... um. 
During the pandemic, we found that we had this amazing people who were starting to learn about us and our plant sales grew significantly during that period and it still has continued. You know, in the area, there's a lot, you were mentioning a lot of greenhouses, commercial greenhouses disappearing, but I've also noticed there's not as many garden centers nearby us, right? And I think mm -hmm. some of the big box stores have taken some of the smaller ones away. There are some great ones nearby. We have great relationships with them, but, but native plants aren't always offered either. And we've just really, it's a way of creating for us it's sort of two. It's a, it is a revenue income, which is great, but it's also a way of creating a great amenity for the public, right? If somebody comes and visits us and walks around, they get a chance to enjoy an opportunity to pick up a plant that maybe they saw in the garden or something that's new to add to their garden and they take it home. And what does everybody do when they're touring, you know, touring somebody around their garden or walking around themselves? They say, I got that one at Jenkins Arboretum and Gardens. So it's just this beautiful connection. And you know, we really work, some of our plants we propagate ourselves from uh, seed and cuttings in the garden. Some we work with area wholesale nurseries in the area. And actually our um, Harold Sweetman, who was the executive director, actually started a wholesale nursery in his retirement. And we buy plants from him that we sell in there. So I, I look at that, you know, even though we might be selling a plant we're not producing, we're selling plants that are locally produced most of them are native plants, North, Eastern uh, North American native plants. Some are non-native azaleas and rhododendrons we have in our collections. So I think people get a little bit of a flavor of it. And we have that, that outdoor sale opportunity is from April, the end of April through October, we have that open. And then our indoor garden shop is features all kinds of nature-themed gifts. Uh, house plants. We have some house plants because we do have a lot of people that come to us who have apartments or condos nearby. And uh, so I think they like being able to buy a plant. I mean, I love that a kid wants to come and buy a nature themed toy from our shop. We have little finger puppets and things, animals and things. But I really love it when they want to pick up a little house plant, like a little succulent or something. That tells me that kid is excited about a plant. Like that yes. is so growing. The plant doesn't do anything. You know, it's like they watch it grow. It's not like it's a, a video game or something you you reconfigure or something like that, but they're excited about it. And that's to me, that's a win, right? If a kid wants to be excited about owning a plant, um, that's the next generation being excited about something. Absolutely. Well, you've been a great guest as so often is the case, Tom, the time has kind of flown by. We did want to ask you, although you may have shown your hand a little earlier, what is your favorite tree? Ooh, that's a that's a, a good one. You know, it's it's hard to pick one favorite tree. I think every horticulturist would be like, what is your one favorite tree? I do go back, I said earlier in the, in the podcast, about the uh, Cornus alternifolia, the pagoda dogwood. You don't see it very often. No. When it's grown well, it is stunning. I believe we have... Yeah, we have one in the collection here, but it's sort of in the in a little bit of a shady area, so it doesn't get that beautiful form you get when it's in full sun, which here, it'd probably be hard to get it in full sun. But uh, I definitely, it doesn't have big flashy flowers like the Florida, the Cornish Florida uh, does, but I just love it. It's, it's, just, it's a great treat. Yeah, I like that. That's a nice call. The, the one that you have, is it seed grown? Do you happen to know? Did it come up? Uh, I don't know where its uh, source material is. I have a feeling it was either somebody collected it somewhere or it was purchased in. I have a feeling it was probably collected somewhere because that's what a lot of the early plants were in a collection. So that's about, is that about 35 feet at maximum height? Is that a sound Yeah, right? I think that's good. The ones I always saw were, you know, maybe 
DB got to, uh, I'm trying to think of the height. 25, 25. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. How much it stretches. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the big dogwood gets to be 35 to 40 feet. Yeah. That's a really, that's the big one. I'm trying to think of its name. It's not, is it Controversa? I think it is. Cornus Controversa. Because right. it's oh, so yeah. big. So yeah. big. I have a pagoda, not pagoda. Uh, I have a Cornus Cusa uh, uh, here next to the house. And those can get reasonably good size. They get big size too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for all that you do for the, for the Arboretum, but also for the community. Cause I know you're very active in uh, the gardens around here in, in Southeastern Pennsylvania, cause we have a lot of gardens and uh, it's, it's nice to see you and, and have this conversation and talk about Jenkins. Definitely. I, I, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with the two of you. And Eva, we'll see each other, I'm sure, in the garden here or another garden. I'm bringing garden. Hal. I'm bringing Hal. Yeah, bring Hal. I want I Hal to see, I want Hal to see Jenkins because he's never been. Yeah, I got to get out of the house. Yeah, you know, I know. It's so easy to get, I, I get stuck in the office. It's like, oh my gosh, I got to take care of this. I yeah. or, he'll bring, or he'll bring his wife, Jennifer. And yeah, yeah, there, you yeah there you go. We have a beautiful uh, visitor art. We have art shows in our one gallery, and um, and we have a visitor um, photo exhibit going on right now. Well, yes. I did make a note. Late April, May is your peak season. So <laughs> and fall and fall. Uh, oh, and fall. Yes, fall. Any time is great. Yeah, we have a great garden. Very cool. Uh, we're open uh, almost 365 days of the year. The only time we're really close is bad weather. Uh, if we have bad weather issues or or things like that, but right. We're open, free of admission, and yeah, I would, we encourage people to come out, check us out. We're open about 9 a.m. to you check our hours for our website. It roughly lines up with close to sunset, but we do have set close hours, but roughly lines up with sunset times. So Terrific. Yeah. Thanks again. Thank Thanks. you. Enjoy have a great show. weekend, Bye-bye. Tom. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.